Hello and welcome to another episode of our Brothers Creed podcast where we talk about motivation, experiences, and exploring the world around us. I'm Jared. I'm Ethan. And today we're going to be talking about kind of all three of those things mixed together, yeah. right? Motivation, experiences, not our experiences, but other people's experiences, and uh, exploring what the world has to offer. So uh, today is kind of focused around uh, Memorial Day and um, really remembering uh, our, our, our soldiers and veterans out there. Um, what we're going to be talking about are, are American hero war stories, uh, people that have gone above and beyond and sacrificing uh, everything up to their lives, potentially, uh, to save their uh, fellow brethren. Um, and so we have some stories that are really cool, some crazy stories. People, I mean, I don't even know how some of these people did some of these things and just the motivation and the, the, the willpower to keep moving forward. So uh, it's going to be a great episode. Hope you guys enjoy it. Let's do it. You can't climb the ladder of success with your hands in the pocket. We will not go quietly into the night. They tell me you're a man with true grit. I am the one who knocks. Don't ever tell me what I can't do, ever! That's how winning is done. Okay, well, uh, thanks for uh, joining us today, guys. I'm very excited to have you on and super jazzed about this episode and remembering our fallen heroes uh, as we, you know, uh, Memorial Day is not just about starting the summer. It's about remembering those who have gone before and the sacrifices that they've made for the freedoms that we enjoy every single day as Americans. So uh, we have some great stories today. Uh, each of us chose kind of uh, one or two stories. And um, one of the ones I want to start out with today is <clears throat> something that uh, that I've always admired, and it's... Um, one that uh, kind of was immortalized in a movie that many of us were familiar with. Uh, the movie is Pearl Harbor. Uh, Good movie. And uh, long movie. Such a crazy uh, time where America was caught totally off guard, you know? Uh, a surprise attack. Uh, well, I guess you could debate that if you really dig in. Some people say that we actually knew about it, but we didn't think it was going to be that bad. But. Regardless, the soldiers were surprised, uh, and there's one story that I find really inspiring and and really cool about one guy, and his name is Doris Miller. Now, Doris Miller, he was an African American, and he, at the time, really, he was um, just uh, he was a a, a mess hall officer, and basically, what that means. Or not, not an officer, but he worked in the mess hall. He did laundry. And so uh, on the morning of, uh, it was uh, December 7th, 1941, 1941. exactly. Uh, he was serving breakfast uh, mess, and he was collecting laundry at 7.57 a.m. on the day of the attack. And he was uh, aboard the battleship West Virginia when it was attacked by torpedoes at, at Pearl Harbor. And so he's just... You know, going about doing his stuff, he's not really, I guess you could say, I mean, he's a soldier in the aspect that he's in the Navy, but he wasn't really doing soldierly things. He didn't have soldierly training. Uh, he was just doing, um, you know, cleaning up and making the food and stuff like that and doing laundry. Uh, so the the Japanese planes came in, torpedoed his ship, and uh, he was... Uh, in a situation where he had to act. 
And so uh, he was um, with uh, some of the commanding officers, and uh, there's a Lieutenant Frederick H. White uh, ordered Millard uh, to help him with Ensign Victor Delano uh, load an unmanned number one and number two Browning 50 caliber anti-aircraft machine gun uh, on the aft of the conning tower. And now Miller was, Doris Miller was not familiar with these guns because he's never, he'd never shot them. Uh, But White and Delano um, instructed him on how to operate it. And and when Delano was expected Miller to feed the ammunition to one gun, he kind of turned his back and then he looked back and uh, Doris Miller was there just firing away. And so he kind of... He had jumped on the gun and was shooting the planes. Yeah, he was like, I'm going to do this myself. And so... I think that's kind of cool because that was outside of his scope of his comfort zone. And even the, the guy who was telling him what to do and, um, you know, saying, hey, this is how you do it, this is how you do it, you, you just load it and I'll, and I'll shoot it. He was kind of like, no, I got this. And so he stood up, he, he stepped up at that time, um, even though he didn't have that experience and that training, and he was shooting down Japanese planes. He shot down at least two Japanese planes uh, that day. And... uh it was, uh, you know, I think such a, a huge example of him stepping up to the plate, not being comfortable, uh, but, you know, defending uh, his life and the life of those around him. And not only that, he helped, uh, there were lots of people that were wounded that he helped them, uh, and he helped, uh, you know, get several people to safety. And so he was uh, eventually awarded um, the uh, art. The Navy Cross, uh, which is he was the first Black African American to be awarded the Navy Cross, and he was uh, a, a big hero, uh, especially for the African American community at that time. And I think that it was he was actually on a like a war bond tour uh, to kind of you know strike up, get people to to donate or. By war bonds, by war bonds so for the military. Yeah, kind of like Captain America, I guess. You know, <laughs> exactly like Captain America was doing. Uh, but you know, there were. Uh, it was a difficult time in American history where you know, African Americans weren't treated the same in the military, and they were kind of disrespected. Well, they were disrespected. They were. I mean, and there, and so there was a lot of back and forth where the people were like, "Oh, you know, he he stood up and saved his country, and all you did was give him a mop." Uh, they gave him after that. You know, you just gave him a mop to go do his duty, do his job again. And so there was this, uh, I think that is really where the tides started to turn. Uh, you know, you talk about, you know, at that time, like like Jackie Robinson. Uh, you know, baseball, yeah. You know, and Doris Miller and some of these other guys. That's where the tides started to turn, I, I think, where people are like, you know, opinions maybe started to change, hopefully. Well, I think eventually, yeah. And I think that really took place in Vietnam. Where I think a lot of hearts changed because you didn't have these segregated platoons anymore. You actually had mixed platoons, and these guys came back from the war, and they were like, you know, yeah, I've been I've been elbow deep in blood and guts with these guys. And they're just brothers, right along with yeah. Me. And I'm sure it's hard to be uh, feel a certain way against someone who is 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 almost like your brother, yeah. and, and and is there in the thick of everything, and and um, you know, he sacrifices his life for you, and you sacrifice your life for, for them. And then after you go to get a beer or something like that, and then like they're like, oh, we don't serve these guys, and you're like, are you kidding me? Like, this guy was... Yeah, whenever you get home, and you're like, this guy's done more for this country than you would ever know. Yeah, exactly. So uh, it's just interesting how that turns. So I, I just w- think it was, uh, it was great to honor him, 
and uh, that sacrifice. And I, I liked his story specifically because he stepped, he stepped outside of his comfort zone to protect his country and, and himself and his fellow soldiers in a time of desperate need. Uh, and cool. cool, pretty cool. Yeah, going above and beyond the line of duty. So I, I, I like that. Hey guys, I just wanted to take a quick break and say thank you for listening to this episode and invite you to support us on Patreon. As a loyal supporter, you will get exclusive access to two additional episodes per month, which are not released to the public. You can find the link to our Patreon page in the episode description. Let's get back to the show. Uh, One of the stories that I had looked into was um, he was a helicopter pilot... um, and this specific story happened uh, in in Vietnam, um, but so this this man, his name was um, was Ed Freeman. So just imagine this: imagine you're a 19 year old kid, you're you know you've been shot, you're in a battle in in Vietnam, you're critically wounded, you're you're laying on the jungle floor, bleeding out, and you're dying. It's the uh, the Battle of uh, Ia. Drang, uh, the Iadrang Valley. Uh, it's one of the largest, va- uh, one of the largest battles in Vietnam that that uh, that we were in. Um, let's say your your unit is outnumbered eight to one against the enemy, who is just is constantly firing. Seems like they have they have unlimited uh, stores of ammunition. Um, they're firing at you from a hundred or two hundred yards away. So like one football field shooting just laying down AK-47 rounds at you right um, wow. you know that you're uh, your own infant so, so that you're the infantry and the landing zone was so hot that the commanders had ordered that all of the medevac helicopters stop coming in they said it's too dangerous we can't have any medevac helicopters coming in they said we just can't do it so you're just stuck. I so mean, if you get shot, it's a death sentence. Basically. Yeah, I mean, imagine you're this guy shot laying in the bottom of the jungle, and you you hear over the radio, "No more medevac helicopters. It's too dangerous." And you're like, "Well, I am screwed, right?" <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm getting shot at. I'm probably going to get shot again, and there's no help coming because the they, the landing zone is too hot. So you're lying there. You're listening to the enemy machine guns. Um, you you know in the back of your mind you're never going to get out. Your family is twelve thousand miles away. And uh, all the way across the world, you, you know, the whole world probably just starts to kind of fade away. Um, and and I can, I can imagine some, some thoughts of desperation and hopelessness comes into your mind when you're in that type of situation. I have never been in that situation, and I could I couldn't even pretend to imagine. Um, so you know you're hearing this this machine gun, you're hearing the the bullets whizzing over your head. Um, you know that none of the medevacs are coming, that they're all uh, they're all halted, they're all stopped. But there is someone coming. Ed Freeman is coming for you, <laughs> right? He's he's not even a medevac helicopter, and it's not his job to fly in and to medevac people out, but. He um, he has an amazing story, and he did uh, one of the most miraculous things, and, and probably one of the most selfless things that that uh, that I can think of in putting himself in the line of danger. So, so Ed Freeman, he was actually born in 1927 uh, to a big family, lived on a farm in Mississippi. Um, he joined the Navy 
1944 and actually was in the Pacific Theater during the end of World War II. Um, oh, wow. So, so he did that. And then once he got out of the military, he uh, went back to school um, and decided that he wanted to re-enlist. So he re-enlisted and he enlisted into the Army. And then he served in Korea. Um, and then after the Korean War, he... Um, wanted to become a pilot. He's like, I'm going to become a, a helicopter pilot. And he was 6'4". And they said, That's dude, big. they said, no way. They said, you're, you're not going to... Well, actually, he initially, I think he wanted to be a, a just a, a, a normal pilot, not specifically a helicopter pilot. And there was regulations on you couldn't be like over, I don't know, 5'9", or I don't know, whatever the height regulation was. He couldn't fit in the cockpit. Yeah, the cockpits were smaller. And um, they told him, you will never fly. But he was persistent and kept on, kept on, kept on. Went to fly school and actually became a pilot. Um, so he he became a pilot. Um, when Vietnam rolled around, obviously he was a little bit older, um, and he was very seasoned. Uh, he was really close to retirement. He was only a couple years away from retirement when the Vietnam War broke out. Um, but he was assigned to pilot um, the 229th Assault Helicopter Battalion is what he was assigned to, and he was one of the uh, the leaders of that battalion. So when this uh, battle of Ian Drang, which was the, the first major battle that the United States were in with the North Vietnamese, uh, when it started, um, you know, they came in, and, and he was one of the pilots that was dropping off troops. So he, you know, they took in a bunch of troops and he was dropping them off in his big Huey helicopter and then he would take off and he would take, so he's basically a, a troop transport. Yeah. And he was transporting troops in his helicopter. Well, once the the battle got so bad that they basically said no more medevac helicopters are going in, they, um, the men on the ground were... I mean, they, they were struggling to even maintain their, their their defenses. They were running out of ammunition, running out of supplies, running out of uh, medical equipment, um, and running, really kind of running out of guys to a certain extent. I mean, because they were just being slaughtered. Um, and so back at the base or the staging area where the helicopters were, were housed, um, the Army Major Bruce Crandall... Uh, called for one volunteer to fly back with him and and help him, um, and Freeman was the only helicopter pilot that raised his hand that said that he, I, I'll, I'll go back. And in an interview later, they somebody asked him, "Well, why did you volunteer to to go get those guys?" And he goes, "He said because I was the one that put them there, right? I was the one that dropped them off there huh. and left." Interesting. And. Um, so for hours on end, uh, Freeman and this other guy, uh, Crandall, flew unarmed helicopters. Um, they were not medevacs, but they flew helicopter, these unarmed helicopters, and basically landed in this hot landing zone under fire and dropped supplies. And eventually, once they dropped supplies, they ended up starting to, to haul out um, wounded, wounded soldiers. So uh, he said... He said, I put 14 hours in that day, in and out of that landing zone. Um, and at at 10 p.m., 10.30 p.m., I made my last landing with some guy helping me by holding a flashlight uh, in the middle of the field. Um, and it, it was just 
it was crazy. Um, he ended up making. Uh, he went back and forth, so it, it was interesting. He, he he would fly in a helicopter, and then there were several times where he got back to the headquarter base, and he had to switch helicopters because the helicopter he was flying was, was too so was, was too badly damaged that it couldn't make a trip again. So we ended up switching helicopters like five or six times. Jeez, and uh, he ended up making twenty one trips back and forth. He it dropping supplies, ammunition, uh, water, uh, you know, medicine, everything to to the troops that were there, and ended up taking out um, more than seventy wounded soldiers to safety. Um, wow! And so in the process, actually, that so this battle of you ever see the movie We Were Soldiers? Or we are soldiers, I think. We were soldiers. Mel Gibson, right? Yeah, with Mel Gibson. So that ago, yeah. that movie is based off of that battle. Oh, okay. Um, and I don't think they specifically go into. I don't. I, I can't remember the movie exactly. I don't know if they they if they have this guy in there at all. But um, he ended up getting the um, the Medal of Honor for um, actually President Bush gave him the Medal of Honor. Uh, whenever Several years George later. Bush, yeah, was George, it posthumous? Was it after he died? No, he uh, he ended up dying. I think in like two thousand two or something like that, two thousand six or something from uh, Parkinson's. Parkinson's. Oh wow. Yeah, complications with Parkinson's. Wow. So I mean, he lived. I mean, he was old, right? I mean, he fought in World War Two, and yeah. then just recently died. You know, less than twenty years ago. Um. So That's, that was yeah. just a story that I thought was really cool, and and. One of the biggest things for me is that he was, I mean, he he was like a, not even maybe not even a year away from retirement, and he was willing to sacrifice himself for number one, people that maybe he didn't even know, and number two, um, putting himself in a t- that type of situation where he knew that you're constantly going to get shot at. Now, I I have. I have heard the story several times. I think there's a couple different renditions of it to a certain extent. Some details have been changed. The The version that I had originally heard said that he had been shot multiple times um, in the legs and the shoulder and the arm and um, and had, had uh, shrapnel from them shooting the glass and the glass going in his face and stuff like that. Um, and that, that he had been severely hurt, but that he kept flying. Um, the, this article that had more detail didn't say that. I like to think that maybe he did. <laughs> I mean, how do you not? You I know? wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised. Jeez. Let's say that. Wow. Um, what a crazy story. So, yeah, I mean, people, and, and, and it was crazy that he was the only one to volunteer. Now, I don't know how many pilots there were, but well, I think I'm so, pretty sure there was more than one pilot. I think sometimes it's like they ask for volunteers because... You don't want nobody wants to get like ordered to their death, you know. It's like yeah. they know what was going on over there, and then, and then it's like, "Hey, you, you're gonna go," and it's like, "Why me?" You know. So they ask for volunteers, yeah. and then if yeah, if someone, I don't know, maybe it's it's more on the conscious of. We ask for volunteers first, and then voluntold somebody, and then next yeah. you voluntold somebody. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. Crazy story. Awesome story. Um, I mean the 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 guy that you had shared and this guy, um, I'd like to think that. In that type of situation, I would be the one to, you know, step up and do the right thing. But you know what? I mean, a lot of stuff probably goes through your mind. You know, I got kids. I've got, you know, I've got a family or, you know, I don't want to die. I mean, I, I don't know. I, 
yeah, I, I can't even pretend to understand the, I don't know, the bravery or the loyalty that some of these guys, some yeah. of these guys have. So, especially when you're vo- when you just volunteer to go do that, because you're already safe, and then you volunteer to go help those guys out. Yeah, that's a different. I think it's a little bit of a different situation as opposed to like you're in the situation and you're just trying to survive. You know, for sure. Hmm. Well, the next one is one that Ethan and I both kind of studied, and we both think this guy's so awesome. Uh, Ethan's going to introduce him a little bit, and then his Medal of Honor story is so awesome that I was just going to read it uh, here because the details are just so cool uh, that I thought it would be really good just to, to read through the whole story and give you get a real sense of, of what he went through on that day he earned his Medal of Honor, but then also providing the context of uh, what happened to him before that and then after that. Yeah, so um, this guy, uh, his name was uh, Roy Benavidez, um, and they they call him the the Lazarus soldier. Uh, Lazarus, as in like the Bible, Lazarus from like ra- being raised from the dead, right? So uh, he kind of has the story goes. I mean, he kind of had three lives, is what they talk about. Um, he kind of you know came back from the dead. Um, and so his first life, uh, I guess he he was a master sergeant, um, kind of toward towards the end of his career. But he was born in Texas to a Mexican father and an Indian mother, uh, Native American mother. Um, both of his parents actually passed away of tuberculosis before he was five. Oh, yeah. So him and his brother kind of bounced around. I think they ended up living with uh, some other family members. Um, but uh, came from a very, very poor situation. Um, his dad, when he was alive, he was a, a sharecropper and um, was just, they, they struggled massively. So uh, Roy dropped out of school uh, in seventh grade to start working the farms, picking sugar beets to help basically support his family, uh, to, put, to put food on the table. Um, so once he grew up, when he was 17, he figured probably my best my best future is to join the military. Um, so he, at 17, he joined the Texas National Guard. Um, and then at 19, he joined uh, the Army. And so uh, while in the Army, he did lots of different things. There was a stint uh, where he was a, a studied training under military police. He was paratrooper. He... Uh, was just kind of continued to advance and get better and get better um, and advancing towards more uh, special operations and and things like that. So in 1965, he was sent to Vietnam to train the uh, the native soldiers there. Um, He was kind of, uh, you know, one of the guys that was there making sure that the... um, that the native the native soldiers knew knew what they were doing and 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 had the the skills to move forward. So, um, while he was there, um, he went on a what they called it a solo patrol, which uh, most likely means that he was on some sort of kind of covert operation, uh, where he was yeah. supposed to be gathering intelligence on the uh, the North Vietnamese and and kind of some of their locations and everything. Well, while he was on that patrol, he stepped on a landmine. And um, this landmine basically blew him up, and it left him severely wounded. He had severe injuries to his spine, um, to the point to where he was he was paralyzed. Uh, he couldn't move his legs. 
The and doctors so, told him, you are never going to walk again. Yeah, so they sent him, they evac- they evac'd him to uh, Texas, where he got medical care, and basically the doctors there, they gave him the news that, look, you'll never walk again. Um, and because of that, we're, we're going to discharge you from, from the military. And so he knew that he had no life to go back to. And um, he had a, a family history of military service. And he basically, to be discharged for him was, was worse than, than death. Um, well, he, did have, he did have a wife. At that point, yes, he did. Um, and so he, uh, the story goes, they told him he'd never walk again. He couldn't move his legs. So in the evening, you know, he would do his normal uh, PT and everything that the, the doctors were, the nurses and stuff would give him. But at night, he would, uh, he would kind of sneak off of his bed and he would crawl across the floor to the nearest wall, and he would uh, kind of uh, get, get a table or a chair or something. He'd prop himself up against the wall in a standing position. He'd lift himself up, standing on his feet, even though it was excruciatingly painful, and he would stand there as long as he could and just try to wiggle his toes. And that was his whole thing. I'd try to wiggle my toes. And so after... Uh, doing this and doing this and this, he was uh, he wanted to go back to Vietnam. So he was in this hospital for nine months. After nine months, the doctor came and said, "Okay, Roy, here are your discharge papers." He said, "No." He said, "Don't." He said, "I don't want them." He said, "I'm not going to go." And the doctor said, "Okay, well, if you can get up out of that bed and walk out of this room, I will rip these papers up." And he did it. He got up and he walked out. And to the cool. doctor's surprise, I mean, he got up and he walked out. And it was interesting because he's done a lot of motivational speaking and stuff like that since um, these events happened. But uh, he says that whenever he walked out, he was in excruciating pain. Um, but at that point, um, that was kind of like his first life. Like He had been, as, as Lazarus arose from the dead, uh, so did he. He walked out of the grave and he started his, his second life. Um, and that was in 19, that was in July of 1966, yep. walked out of the hospital with his hospital by his side and determined to return to combat in Vietnam, um, despite that pain that he yep. had uh, from his wounds. Uh, f- and so what happened next is kind of where this story even more ramps up. So in, in January of 1968, uh, he returned to South Vietnam. Now this story is, is kind of long. I'm, I'm but it's really good, so I'm going to read it, um, read it through. And uh, so he was in the United States Army, uh, and he uh, distinguished himself uh, by a series. This was the Medal of Honor uh, description. Each each, uh, the, each Medal of Honor recipient has a description of what the act was itself. I think there has to be like a certain eyewitnesses, and, yeah, and there's there, a certain requirements that have to go and, into And then, it. like, so this was, I think, what, what, because Ronald Reagan's the one that gave it to him, so I think this is what he read. Um, and so, he was assigned to the detachment uh, B-56 5th Special Forces Group Airborne, uh, 1st Special Forces Republic of Vietnam. So, on the morning of May 2nd, 1968, a 12-man Special Forces Reconnaissance Team was inserted by helicopters of the 240th Assault Helicopter Company in a dense jungle area west of Loc Ninh, Vietnam, to gather intelligence information about confirmed large-scale enemy activity. This area was controlled and routinely patrolled by the North 
Mee's army. After a short period of time on the ground, the team met heavy enemy resistance and requested emergency extraction. Three helicopters attempted extraction, but were unable due to unable to land due to the intense enemy small arms and anti-aircraft fire. So these guys are pinned down. Sergeant Benavides was at the forward operation forward operating base or the FOB in Loch Nin, monitoring the operation by radio. When these helicopters of the 240th Assault Helicopter Company returned to offload wounded crew members and crew members and to assist aircraft assess aircraft damage, Sergeant Benavides voluntarily, which is cool, just like the last one, uh, boarded a returning aircraft to assist in an, another extraction attempt, realizing realizing that all the team members were either dead or wounded, and unable to move to the pickup zone. He directed the aircraft to a nearby clearing where he jumped from the helicopter and ran approximately 75 meters under withering small arms fire to the crippled team. So I'm going to add in one thing here too, is that actually one of the, um, one of the guys that was pinned down and it was there um, was a man that had saved um, Roy's life uh, not to... Uh, Several several months before this, um, they were like dangling from a helicopter, and their the rope that they were dangling from had like broken, and this guy had saved Roy's life. Oh, really? Uh, from falling off, from from falling to his death, and so Roy uh, had had uh, noticed that this guy was one of the guys that was pinned down, and that was one of the reasons why he volunteered too. Oh, so that's kind of cool. cool. But yeah, I mean, he yeah. straight up volunteered. He just jumped on the helicopter and was like. I'm going. Yeah. Yeah. It says, prior to reaching the team's position, he was wounded in his right leg, face, and head. Despite these painful injuries, he took charge in uh, repositioning the team members and directing their fire to facilitate the landing of an extraction aircraft and the loading of wounded and dead team members. He then threw smoke canisters to direct the aircraft to the team's position. Despite his severe wounds and under intense enemy fire, he carried and dragged half of the wounded team which was a thing in Team 12, it said, yeah. members to the awaiting aircraft. He then provided protective fire by running alongside the aircraft as it moved to pick up the remaining team members. As the enemy fire intensified, he hurried to recover the body and classified documents on the dead team leader. When he reached the leader's body, Sergeant Benavides was severely wounded by small arms fire in the abdomen and grenade fragments in his back. So he was shot in the stomach. And grenaded in the and back. And grenaded in the back. It's crazy. This is why I'm reading this, because all these details are so cool. At nearly the same moment, the aircraft pilot was mortally wounded, and his helicopter crashed. Although in extremely critical condition due to his multiple wounds, Sergeant Benavides secured the classified documents and made his way back to the wreckage, where he aided the wounded out of the overturned aircraft and gathered the stunned survivors into a defensive perimeter. Under increasing enemy automatic weapons and grenade fire, he moved around the perimeter to Disturbing, uh, distributing water and ammunition to his weary men, uh, reinstilling in them a will to live and fight. Facing a buildup of enemy opposition with a, be- a beleaguered team, Sergeant Benavides mustered his strength and began calling in tactical airstrikes and directed the fire from supporting gunships to support the enemy's, so to suppress the enemy's fire and so permit another extraction attempt. Now it says he was wounded again and his thigh by small arms fire while administering first aid to a wounded team member just before another extraction helicopter was able to land. 
His indomitable spirit kept him going as he began to ferry his comrades to the craft. On his second trip with his with the wounded, he was clubbed from behind at the by an enemy soldier. In the ensuing hand-to-hand combat, so this is this part is interesting. Uh, a, a, a one of the enemy soldiers uh, accosted him and basically stabbed him with his with a bayonet. Benavides pulled it out, uh, yanked out his own knife, and and stabbed the guy, and then just kept going and left the knife in the guy, uh, and just left him and kept going. So he suddenly um, he sustained additional wounds to his head and arms before killing the adversary. So he you know, tussled with this guy hand to hand after getting clubbed in the back of the head with a and then rifle stabbed with the guy's bayonet. He took he took the bayonet out, took his own knife, stabbed the guy, killed the guy, and keep kept going. As as he then continued under devastating fire to carry the wounded to the helicopter, upon reaching the aircraft, he spotted and killed two enemy soldiers who were rushing the craft from an angle that prevented the aircraft door gunner from firing upon them. With little strength remaining, he made one last trip to the perimeter to ensure all classified material had been collected or destroyed and to bring in the remaining wounded. Only then, in extremely serious condition, from numerous wounds and loss of blood, did he allow himself to be pulled into the extraction's aircraft. Sergeant Benavides' gallant, gallant choice to join voluntarily his comrades who were in the critical stra- straits to expose himself constantly to withering withering enemy fire and his refusal to stop despite numerous severe wounds saved the lives of at least eight men. His fearless personal leadership uh, tenacious devotion to duty and extremely valorous actions in the face of overwhelming odds were in keeping with the highest traditions of a military service and reflect the utmost credit on him and the United States military. So that was his Medal of Honor paper. Yeah, that was I mean, that was that was what, why he got the Medal of Honor. Yeah, that was how, that was how he got that Medal of Honor. Yeah, and then so tell about what so, happened. So okay, so he they. Basically, he gets in this chopper and they fly back to the uh, to the Ford operating base, um, where they have uh, doctors and medical and everybody there. So basically, they start sifting through the people that are coming out of these helicopters and putting them in in piles, almost like uh, these people are critical, these people are dead, you know, and these people need to go and get medical attention right now. Um, and he was actually so he had been. Uh, his eyes, so basically the story was uh, he was laying there and he had closed his eyes and blood had coagulated and, and, and crusted into his eyes and so he couldn't open his eyes. And his jaw was broken. Um, and obviously he had had severe blood loss and other stuff and so they actually sorted him into the pile of deceased. Yeah. And basically they go through and they, they start putting them in body bags and they check them, you know, check them and then, and then put them in body bags. Well, one of... Um, one of his men or someone that knew him maybe i think it was a, maybe that his buddy yeah like, hey. recognized him and said yeah. that is roy go check him and the doctor went over there and checked him checked for breathing checked his pulse all sorts of kind of stuff and the doctor said he's he's gone there's nothing i can do for him yeah and then so he started to zip up the body bag and roy spit in the doctor's face yeah <laughs> and um and like, it was interesting. I mean, he, your medical license should be revoked. <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing is, too, is I don't think he spit in his face to be like uh, just to tell him he was alive. Yeah, yeah. So, so basically, he spit. He spit at him to uh, to tell him he was alive because he couldn't speak. His jaw was broken, and, and he could hear them talking. And he was like, "They just pronounced me dead. I got to do something to whatever." Um, and so, uh, 
and he, I mean, he had this previous, had this previously had this back injury. Maybe he was paralyzed to a certain extent again. And so I don't even know, but the, basically when he did that, they said, Oh, you know, this guy's alive. Let's go, let's, let's take him in. And they took him in. And so he spent a year in the hospital recovering another year, a y- another year. Well, the first one was nine year. was nine months. Oh. He spent a year in the hospital recovering from his wounds. Wow. And, um, so it was the story of him getting the Medal of Honor was actually really kind of interesting because first off he got I think it's called the Distinguished Cross or something like that for valor, um, and that's a much quicker process. And so his commanding officer um, had applied to get him that before because he thought he was going to die, and he and wanted, wanted to do it. While he he wanted alive. to do it while he was alive, and so he got that. But then he recovered, and then um, you know, years later, they uh, he actually ended up getting the, the Medal of Honor. You said I think Reagan gave it to him. Yeah, he did. Um, so that was his second life, right? I mean, at this point, this guy's lived two lives. He's been he's come back from the dead. He's he's Lazarus, right? He's come back <laughs> twice, and yeah. so going into his third life is is really interesting. Um, he ended up. Um, getting out of the military, he went back to school, um, and, uh, you know, studied and, and, and basically, um, you know, had a career and everything else. But, but because of his injuries, he was actually considered, uh, like almost a hundred percent disabled. Um, and he, and he got disability benefits from the military. Um, and so it, it's really interesting because he kind of became an advocate for, um, uh, soldiers receiving uh, disability benefits um, because there was a lot of soldiers. And, and at this time, I guess the VA or whatever else, it just wasn't really put together very well. And you had all these guys coming back with all kinds of illnesses, you know, whether it's from you know, Agent Orange or or, or, or whatever PTSD, else they were using. PTSD, PTSD which wasn't yeah. even recognizably yeah. back then. PTSD that they didn't really know everything that was that was coming from it. And plus these guys were coming back to a, a, a country that was calling them, you know, baby killers and all this sort of kind of stuff. And so yeah, not totally. everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people were, um, I don't know if you ever seen Forrest Gump. It's just like that. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> so he came back and, um, basically he became an advocate and there was actually at some, at one point for some reason, he no longer qualified for his military benefits. And so he like, temporarily lost them or something like that and then he he petitioned for him and he got his benefits back and and um it was just this 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 whole long ordeal that uh uh kind of went back and forth and and he basically went around he became a motivational speaker and he would talk with with schools and colleges and and and, and anybody who was willing to hear not only his story but you know he would share the stories of, of valor from um from all of his experiences. Uh, it, I just thought that was, that was really cool. A guy who, um, you know, he, he, he had some great quotes that basically was, you know, to sum up his words to a certain extent is, you know, I was just doing what I was supposed to do. I was doing what anybody else would do. So I don't know if you're doing what anybody else would do, but, uh, you did like a tank, man. Yeah. You, you did going. what you did. I mean, it's like, yeah. I mean, this, this is like the John Wick of Vietnam. <laughs> Yeah, incredible valor. Also, you think about, you know, he had full disability benefits, and yet he is like, no, I'm, I, he's that 
unconquerable spirit that he had within him to be like, you kept, know, I'm going to go out. Going. I'm going to go to school. I'm going to be. I'm going to do this. I'm going to make something of my life. I'm not just going to be a disabled vet the rest of my life. And that was the same spirit to help them recover from the first time. Uh, such a, a cool, you know, yeah. Uh, someone who you know this he's uh, American Indian, uh, Mexican guy, uh, or at least that was his heritage. Uh, and he came from nothing, and he just you know showed his true colors. And I think that you know a lot of people uh, sometimes most unexpected purple person you know they show their true colors, and, and in a moment like that, they can uh, really shine. Also, you have to think I think in some sense you have to be a little bit crazy to. Yeah, so <laughs> it was interesting. So his uh, his nickname, right? He got to choose his own nickname, and his his basically his call sign was Tango Mike Mike, mm-hmm. which is T M M, and he got to choose it, and it stood for the Mean Mexican. <laughs> nice. Yeah, Tango Mike Mike. That was his call sign over the radio. Tango Mike Mike, the Mean Mexican. <laughs> T M M. That's so cool. Yeah, and so it was just I don't know, that that's a great story, and you know I, I think. Looking back at these stories, these are all all great stories. There are so many of these stories, and I think there's a lot of people that do extremely valiant things that don't receive, that don't get medal of honor, don't exactly. receive the medal of honor. Totally, um, there's many unsung heroes that we'll never know about that 100%. sacrificed, you know, so much that we'll never even know. Yeah, and so, um, you know, just a thank you to to all uh, all all veterans out there, all, all active duty, and and, and those uh, who retired, uh, remembering and, that yeah, uh, we're and, fallen. Everyone that's fallen, um, you know, this is kind of a, a, a tribute that we wanted to give, and, and we're appreciative. And um, you know, as a as a thank you, we just we appreciate it. Yeah, uh, thankful for all of our freedoms, and uh, hope you guys have a a, a great uh, Memorial Day weekend. And you think about this, and hopefully, uh, this kind of inspires you, motivates you to uh, have that valor and courage in your own lives, and also. Uh, kind of gives you a, a little bit of a wake-up call on, on the sacrifices that were made for you so yeah for me i'm just gonna add something too for me it's almost it's almost it, well it's motivational right i mean these people did things that were completely almost almost inhuman um the things that they did and so i think that speaks to the capability that um that we have as humans to to overcome challenges you know and in this case maybe it's physical mental spiritual every type of challenge um, but you know, we can overcome things in our life too. We can be our own heroes. We can be heroes of our family. We can be heroes for our children. We can make the right decisions. We can, uh, we can, you know, work our butts off and, and, uh, become the best that we can be for, uh, you know, the heritage of our, of our own family and the legacy that, that we can leave for them too. So. Absolutely. Well, uh, this has been great. Thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, we appreciate it. Uh, you know, if, uh, you don't uh, follow us already on Instagram, please do so. Also, we're on YouTube. And if you can, please uh, leave us a, some, uh, a rating on uh, wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, just uh, maybe a rating and a comment that you'd like to show. Uh, that helps. That goes a long way and uh, lets a lot of others know about it, our show. So we appreciate that. And uh, we hope you have a good weekend and let's build that creed together. All right, let's do it. Thank you.